Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Josh Smith Show. The Josh Smith Show is brought to you by Paragon Kilns. Paragon Kilns are some of the fastest heating and most accurate kilns in the world today. Uh, I, in my own custom knife-making business, and so many knife-makers that I know, use a Paragon Kiln uh, just to increase the accuracy and the consistency of which their knives are heat-treated. Check out the Paragon Kilns at paragonweb.com. Also brought to you by Montana Knife Company. Montana Knife Company knives are working knives for working people. All Montana Knife Company knives are 100% American-made, hand-finished, and hand-sharpened. We here at Montana Knife Company believe that manufacturing can be done here in the U.S., and that's where our knives are built. Check out MontanaKnifeCompany.com, and we are also on Instagram at Montana Knife Company as well as Facebook. Also brought to you by Maritime Knife Supply. Maritime Knife Supply is a place I buy my belts, uh, buy a lot of my sandpaper. They also sell steel, grinders, heat treat ovens, just about anything else you can imagine. Maritime Knife Supply is located in Canada, so even though it takes a little bit longer to ship your stuff down here, you can take advantage of the exchange rate, uh, which is actually a pretty good deal when you're putting in a fairly big order. Check out MaritimeKnifeSupply.com and at MaritimeKnifeSupply on Instagram and Facebook. Let's get to the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Josh Smith Show. This week, I am joined by Bert Soren. Bert and I, over the last couple of years, have become friends. I was invited to Bert's farm by Neil Kamamura to demonstrate blade forging with him, kind of hang out. And I was exposed to this really cool event called Winter Strong. And really, it was a game changer for me, uh, my wife, and, and definitely a launching point for our company. Bert puts on this event and really provides a place for really cool people across different industries to come together and kind of network, share ideas, learn, uh, learn from each other of, of the things that they don't really know how to do. Uh, might be a a guy from the shooting industry that's learning from a, a fitness instructor or a, a weightlifting person or, or learning about diet and nutrition. And it might be that nutrition guy, a uh, strength coach for a college that's learning how to forge knives or, or create a, build a primitive fire, uh, shoot guns, shoot bows. There's so much really cool stuff that happens out there. And it's a, it's a really cool idea because he brings a bunch of people from different industries together uh, to learn from each other. Uh, but Bert's a lot more than that. Bert owns Sornex, uh, along with his dad, Pops, uh, Richard Soren. And Sornex is actually, they build weightlifting equipment, the, the big squat racks and stuff that you see in, in a lot of these colleges and pro professional teams going in uh, for the military. Uh, it's all made in America. Welders welding steel day and night, 24 hours a day, building equipment here in the U.S., which is really cool in itself. Um, the quality craftsmanship and the level of craftsmanship that their equipment is is just unbelievable. Uh, he's one of the, one of the coolest humans. He's a uh, big bow hunter, rifle hunter, uh, great archery shot. You'll see him at the Sornex Outdoors, or he him him and his people kind of have Sornex Outdoors, and they're at the TAC events. Um, they're actually going to have booths this year at TAC and. Bert's just one of those guys that's got a lot of different interests and a lot of different abilities, and he's and he's a people person. He brings really cool people together, 
And one of the things that he likes to say is he likes to hang out with people in thin air and in deep water. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the podcast, but I encourage you to to listen to Bert and maybe even implement some of the ideas that he's had and he's done, even copy some of those ideas in your own lives. Uh, he's just a really cool person um, and, and become one of my really good friends. So I'm actually looking forward to sharing a hunting camp with him this fall. Um, but yeah, take a listen. I'll, I'll quit rambling and you guys can check it out. Bert, how you doing? Hey, what's up, Josh? How are you, bud? Good, man. Thanks for joining me. Of course. Always love getting to talk with you. Yeah, I've been wanting to get you on here for a while. Uh, I had to get a little podcast practicing going in before I before I brought you in here, but uh, yeah, getting a little bit more of a of a following here. And I was I was thinking I always um, am posting about you know, Sornex or Winter Strong, and it, it's kind of like this elusive thing. I get people messaging me, asking me, like, what is the deal with this group, or how do I get there, or who is this guy with the beard? <laughs> so, well, that, That's funny, because it, it goes the other way, too, because, you know, being in the strength world or the human performance world, they're like, why are you all these nice guys you're always talking to? It's like you and Neil and, and Jason and, and, and yeah. Luke, you know, and it's just like, okay, you, you are, are you all nice guys? I'm like, well, well yes and no. These are my peeps. Yeah, know? exactly. So no, it's, funny. it's super cool. Well, let's, exactly. uh, let's kind of talk a little bit. You, so you own, you own Sornex, um, yes. you and your, uh, your family, your dad, let's talk a little bit about that and get kind of a background about, you know, I, I know you've gone over it on other podcasts, but you haven't here. So kind of, kind of how you got to where you are today and, um, tell us, kind of tell us what Sornex is. Sure. Sure. So Sornex is a family owned business. We, we build custom weightlifting equipment and we do some kind of off the shelf stuff as well. Uh, but we're in the human performance world, which means strength, conditioning, stamina, um, you know, we build the tools that help athletes or artists or, you know, outdoorsmen, hunters, whatever they may be, we build the strength tools that help them with their job. Um, so, you know, some people say that bigger, faster, stronger, tougher, harder to kill, whatever that may be. Right. So we've been in business, uh, since 1980. So we're coming up on, gosh, we're 20, uh, 40, almost 42 years. Wow. And, um, so my dad started the business, uh, in our carport back in the, uh, back in 1980, I was a little boy. And so I grew up around it and worked, uh, my, kind of my first job back when I was 14 or 15 was working in the shop, cutting steel, grinding, you know, working, chipping BBs and stuff like that. Yeah. And then, uh, kind of kept working myself into position, went off to college, was an athlete. So, uh, I was track and field athlete, actually a hammer thrower. So for those who know about, um, track and field, it, it is the sport of training because it's, it's a, a true finish line sport where, if you've trained and you've prepared, you don't have any, uh, you know, your strategy is, is, is go all out, right? There's not like a, right. in football or, or a, a different sport with like an opponent, you have strategies and other things. It's like, say, if you're a shot putter or a hammer thrower, the whole idea is 
you know, train as hard as you can, train as smart as you can and go out there and throw the freaking thing as far as possible. So you have a very clear understanding, did my training work or not? Sure. And so from a scientific side, I always enjoyed that because I never had to take into account, I hate to say teammates or opponents or whatever. It was literally, was I prepared or not? Yeah, just Um, all on you. Right, exactly. And so that kind of adds into later with archery or shooting or, or long range shooting or whatever. It's it's a mix of the science of it and it's a mix of the art of it. And yeah. so the art is where the competition side came in. So anyway, I did that through college. And uh, right after college, I came out and um, I, I'd really started understanding training per, per se much, much more. And I came on in 1999 to help my dad out with our family business. Uh, but I was still training for the 2000 Olympic trials as, and then I went on to train for the 2004, four years later. Um, so during those five years of, I guess, just being a professional track athlete, uh, I traveled all around the country and all around the world looking for more cutting edge methods to, to train and to change my body and to change my, my prowess on the field. Sure. So that that really dialed in very well to the business that, that I was you know, working at full time, which was Sornex, because those were the tools and I was out on the street learning the application. Right. So I was able to bring something <clears throat> a little bit more updated uh, to the business where dad had the structural knowledge and certainly the training knowledge. He was an athlete as well and lifter as well. I mean, he's lifted more than I'll ever think about, but well, I had that's, a little bit I, more. I was going to ask you so about I, what, Richard is your dad, but most people, we kind of, everyone pretty much refers to him as pops. Um, he, what was his, uh, I mean, you think about back when he was doing all that, um, when he was lifting and training and whatnot, like the, it's actually interesting because you look back at the athletes of, of, you know, the seventies and whatnot and, and, you know, strength training was actually, you know, I think there were a lot of mixed reviews on that. I mean, you had a lot of professional athletes that thought with lifting weights was bad for him. Um, Absolutely, he that's seemed a, to really be point. on the cutting edge of 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 the whole training training idea. He was in so many ways. That that's really interesting that you picked up on that. So he started training in the early '60s when he was probably 11 or 12 years old, and he he always loved. Uh, weightlifting or at that time, you know, it was called weightlifting, but it, we know it now is Olympic weightlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of powerlifting mixed in there with like the bench squat and the deadlift, but a lot of his love was the clean and jerk and the snatch and things like that. So he grew up loving the iron. That was what he was into, that and, and the outdoors. So he ended up getting a scholarship to throw the discus, but he is funny. He never equated his strength and his power in the weight room with why he was one of the best uh high schoolers in the nation of the discus he just kind of thought well i'm kind of good at this isn't that funny but i also really enjoy throw also really enjoy lifting he always told me he said i i lifted because i loved it i threw because i was good at it yeah and uh, you look back and you're like he laughs he goes gosh if i would thought to to really train sports specifically for what I was trying to do because until I didn't realize that until really I was done, you know, competing, um, he goes, gosh, you know, I could have been a lot better, but that being said, so, you know, like you said, from a cutting edge side, he came to school at university of South Carolina in 1968. There wasn't a weight room here, uh, at the university. There was no strength program. There was no such thing as a strength coach at the time. 
And as a freshman, he brought down his, well, they actually, he, he asked to borrow a car. He borrowed it from one of his buddies, drove back up to New Jersey during one of the breaks and brought down his own Olympic lifting set with the, uh, the, the bars, the weights, everything like that. And the school, which is crazy to think about, they gave him a room in the student center as a freshman to set up the first weight room at University of South Carolina. Wow. And, and you think back, you're like, how the heck did they even push that through? But he, he was a high recruit, and he's like, I want to lift weights. And, of course, they initially said you'll be, you know, um, muscle-bound and the whole thing like right, that. But, right. you know, he's – Make you, know, you slow. <laughs> make you slow, right? And you're like, okay, well, but you also have the highest vertical jump on the team, and you're, you know, a thrower. So maybe there's something to this. Right. Um, so he was able to do that. And then subsequently during his graduate program there, he um, – wrote the curriculum and made the first weightlifting uh, strength training um, class there at the university. And so in a way he was somewhat like the first strength coach at the university itself because there were no right. strength conditioning coaches. Uh, so that's where he's always been into. So since he was 10 or 11 years old, uh, you know, there's been very few weeks that he hasn't lifted weights and he turns uh, 71 here in about a month and a half. And, and that's just been what he's, one of the things he's always loved that's been a constant in his life. So growing up around that and realizing that, you know, early on that strength is a great thing to have. Right. Um, you know, probably having too much of it is never really a weakness or being strong is never a weakness. Right. And, and even going back to where when people did start strength training, a lot of it was the bodybuilding era of the late seventies and mid eighties. And he kind of was, I say against that, but he was always into performance and power production, which you kind of see now in the sporting community. That's what matters. Kind of the fun and functional it, strength type the stuff. Functional, right. Functional strength and, 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 you know, rate of force development and moving things fast. And I remember back in 1992, I believe it was, I was in high school and <clears throat> I was in the weight room, I was doing like a, what they call a high pull. It's kind of like a power clean variation. Mm -hmm. And the coach said, well, you know, anybody can move weight. If you're moving it like that, uh, you're cheating a lot. You need to slow it down and feel the burn. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So I go back home and I say, Hey dad, I'm, he says, I'm not doing these high pulls correctly. Cause you know, I'm like kind of jumping into them and everything like that. And he laughed. He goes, well, go back and tell your coach that uh, for, for him to tell you a sport that it's better to be slow and, and then I'll allow you to train slow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and I laughed about it and you look now and you, you know, people wouldn't be caught dead doing a slow methodical lift in sports. Right. It's about but explosion he, he, in ev every it's sport. Explosion. Yeah. Every sport. It, you will not find a sport. They're like, well, this kid is, is wired too hot. You know, he jumps too high and he, he sprints too fast. Right. You know, maybe he, maybe we should, we should trade him in for a slower, crappier version. Right. Like that never happened. So it was interesting that the pots boiled it down so early, so fast. But I think part of my strength, um, of my athletic career was that was where I was always minded. So even if I didn't have the physical capabilities early on, at least the mindset of it always was basically break the bar, you know, yeah, jam you, on the bar so hard, you know, that it worked. And when you talk about your capabilities, I mean, you, you know, you weren't just a hammer thrower. I mean, if I'm a remembering, I, weren't you a four-time All-American? Yeah, I had a pretty good little run. Yeah, um, that's pretty so good. I was, <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I walked on at, at South Carolina because I had never thrown the hammer or the 35-pound weight, which are the two things I became All-American in. 
and um, just fell in love with, with, with being an athlete. So I was a bit of a late bloomer. So my high school career was less than stellar mm-hmm. and through a kind of a forest dump like uh, series of events, I ended up on the track team. Yeah. Um, it was literally kind of like that, you know, you stand in the line kind of deal and you're like, what's this, this looks fun. And then a month later, you're like, uh, I'm on this team now. Yeah. So that's kind of how it worked out. Cause there was never really a plan to do that. My plan was to go to college party. Like I saw in the eighties movies right. and, and go and, and, you know, basically hunt and fish as much as I possibly could and chase girls. Like that was the idea. Like, oh, so this is, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. And, and then, then it turned into know, a lot of work. <laughs> turned into all, all kinds of work. Right. And then, you know, a month later you're pissing blood cause you're so tired and beat up and, you know, you're, I think I gained 30 pounds in the first semester and you're, you're living in a weight room and you're like, wait, I thought this was like going to, going to be like revenge of the nerds. I was going to ask uh, you, it, did you, did you start putting on some of your, more of your size, like later in high school or did you really kind of pack it on in college? Oh, certainly in college. I graduated high school six two one seventy two. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. And I, but my, by my, by my, Christmas, my freshman year, so only what three or four months later, uh, I was six three one ninety nine. So I gained almost thirty pounds in an inch in the first four months of college. Yeah. So I ended up, you know, topping a little over six three, and then uh, I think I got up to two twenty eight, two thirty, maybe in college. I was always had a hard time gaining weight, mm-hmm. but I was able to put on almost sixty pounds, and then later uh in as a professional and then into highland game career my highland game career i got up to about 260 for about a minute and a half one day yeah um <laughs> so you know but most of my olympic trial stuff like that i threw it like 230 yeah you know that kind of was where I, I felt pretty good but no i was a, i'm a very i was a very hard gainer it was very difficult for me to put on weight so i had to eat just insane amounts of food you know eating becomes your job and everyone's like, oh, you can eat whatever you want. I'm like, eh. Yeah. Eating five times a day until you feel nauseous is not necessarily fun. You see those guys, um, and you and you deal with them. I mean, in your in your world a lot, but you see those guys in the NFL. And uh, what was it? Was it the center for the Browns? Um, as, God, what's his name? As soon as he retired, I mean, I, I want to say he lost a hundred pounds. Um, and, and he was uh, a, Joe. Yeah, Joe Thomas. Yeah. Joe Thomas. Sure. Yeah. He's a customer of ours. Yeah. A big hunter too. Yeah. And he, he went from, I mean, one of the hogs, right. To sure. he's absolute chiseled piece of stone walking just around. Shreds just shredded. Yeah, absolutely. And it's <laughs> just like, shredded. yeah, like, and he, he turned into like a magazine model, like a fitness model. And it was like right. unbelievable what those, some of those guys, I mean, yeah, you have your handful of guys that have to, you know, they find them cause they're getting too fat. But I think for the most part, you're talking about guys that that should be 260 and they're walking around at 310, you know, and it, they're working exactly. their tail off to keep their weight on. Oh, it's well, Luke Keekley was here the other day too, and like, you know, he was he he's he's still a, a tall. I mean, he's a big, pretty good frame, but you look at him now versus when he was playing only a year or two ago, and you're like, wow, you're you like a guy that could just go to the beach, move around, have a great time, this and that and the right. other. And, and, you know, but at the times you talk to these dudes and everyone kind of rolls their eyes. They're like, oh my gosh, we had to take in so many calories. And it was, it's, it's hard. It's harder than, I know it sounds probably those who maybe have a problem losing weight. It sounds like, oh, big deal. But <laughs> yeah. Being nauseous for five straight years is a little bit 
you know, and then you don't sleep well because, you know, you have to eat again, another thousand calories before you go to bed. And then you have to wake up, you put a peanut butter jelly sandwich beside your bedside table. So you wake up at three in the morning, you eat that half asleep and you go back to sleep because you never want to be in a catabolic state. Well, and then you, it's just a lot of prep. Yeah. And you think about the wear and tear just on their, their joints and their structure. Cause they're not just heavy and sitting around. I mean, they're heavy in their unbelievably active and man that that extra pounding on their body i mean pack on a 60 pound pack and then go run wind sprints for half the year you know right and then then have a car accident (laughs) have a car accident 10 times a day once a week you know Um, by other monsters yeah it's it's really remarkable that the people that could actually handle that sport or any sport that that deals with that violent of activity and that just mass that you have to carry you know there's even the shot putters, like those guys are so big, so strong. People don't understand the weights they have to move yeah. to, to have the power output. You know, dudes are squatting six and 700 pounds plus every week. They're benching 500 pounds every week. Right. And they're walking at 320 and having to do wind sprints and freaking jumps and this, and that, and the other. And like, that's a lot of just, your body's not supposed to be able to do that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, but then you get some of those monsters that, that they came out of the womb. They're just, built to be that way and those are the dudes that play in the league for a long time because their body's like yeah anyway this is what i made for right exactly you know, like you're, you're, like you're, you're you're warren sap so i think the back in the day i, I heard that in his pre I guess this could be a wives tale but i always thought it was funny his um his preseason conditioning was he would switch from smoking to dipping <laughs> yeah. i do remember him like, in like press conferences with a huge dip in I, yeah, I, and they're like, "Well, he'll get in shape if he just stops smoking a couple weeks." Out. Yeah, God, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, so talk a little bit about so as you're as we're kind of paralleling along here, um, you know the 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 hunting world and the outdoor world doesn't just kind of appear later in your life. I mean, you as you're doing all this, and you kind of alluded to what your plans were for college. Um, you know, as a kid, it sounds like your dad was in the outdoors and, and you guys experienced. Talk a little bit about some of that as as this is right. all, you know, th- it's like the other phase of your life, you know, as you're going along here. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so it was um, it, it was almost like, you remember on, on the Seinfeld episode where there's like his buddy Costanza and then there's like the summer Costanza? There's <laughs> yeah. like, the, the <laughs> like that was the outdoors, like hunting and fishing was always like the, the the other Bert, you know, the right. fall Bert. And then they had like the summer was when I competed and that was like the, the athlete Bert. Right. And I kind of laugh and I go, probably hunting and fishing kept me off of an Olympic team just because the fall where everyone's training super hard. Like right. I would train, but but I was certainly up early, which means I wasn't getting sleep. I was slogging through the woods. I was doing, you know, and then of course you're hunting and you're eating at gas stations and all the other Camo, yeah, Bert, Camo Bert really messed up shorts and t-shirts. Camo Bert, Bert really screwed up freaking uh, <laughs> uh, tight Bert. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, so, yeah, that was always the thing. I, mean, I remember being back in high school, you know, reading, you know, all the magazines, dreaming about, you know, hunting in the wet, hunting mule deer one day in the West. And, you know, I think I, my dad brought me out to Wyoming for Christmas, um, like in 94, like my freshman year. And I've never been west of the mississippi i just remember falling in love with just the, the majesty of of that area and seeing elk for the first time and mule deer and rams and and bison and all this stuff and right. it was just like okay that is 
you know, I hunt whitetails and all that around here, but that is what I want to do when I can. And it was always just kind of held in high regard of what I would want to do with, with my free time. And, you know, I had a, a, a little part, so I was always hunting and fishing. And then of course, during that athletic period of my life, that kind of took a higher priority, but I was always doing it on the side. And, um, and I look back, I go, gosh, if I had played football, I probably wouldn't have been a hunter because most those that's all a fall sport. And so thankfully track being a spring sport, it panned out. Right. But, uh, I remember when I went to, I got out of track and field in 2004 after the trials and got into Highland games. And I, I went a couple years as an amateur Then I had a pretty good career there. So I turned pro and then I thought about, I said, man, I have the world by the ass. I'm, I'm competing in Highland games, which is wildly fun and making pretty decent money every week. And, and, and I was like, you know, who else, who else has two hobbies and one of their hobbies pays for their other hobbies. Right. And I remember how awesome it was. I'd go and throw in the summer and early fall. My last comp was about like early October, the money that I would make from Highland games, I would be able to buy like a new rifle, a, my deer lease and like, any of my hunting stuff for that new stands and whatever. And I remember thinking like, Oh, I'm like 30 years old and I have the world figured out. I get to do my two favorite things and one pays for the other. I, I, you know, I'm a rich man. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) It it works like that when you're like single and you can be wherever you want to be. And you know, all you got to worry about is no no responsibilities. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember my dad telling me, he's like, enjoy it now. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I have so much stress. I got to train and this thing. He's like, "Uh, anyway, enjoy it now. (laughs) Right. So, so with your, with my gosh, with your trials, how close were you to actually making the games? So, my first trials, uh, I was a centimeter out of finals. Uh, a centimeter? Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) That sucks. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so that sucked and then i got knocked out of finals again my my second time by one of my favorite people on the planet uh legend uh named judd logan and that would have been his fifth olympics uh had he made the team that time and he he was actually a mentor and a coach to me it was a really cool move so i was throwing super far you know uh coming into that trials actually warm up throwing super far long story but I just didn't put it together in the, in the three throws I needed. And so he came up, popped a good throw, but injured himself during the throw. And he barely bumped me out. And uh, he went to, so the next day was the finals and he went to the Olympic committee. He says, listen, like I'm hurt. I can't throw any further. I'm not going to throw any further. Right. Um, if I step out, you need to take Soren to the finals because he's ready to throw super far. Right. And, you know, and they go, well, no, the Olympic rules are if you, if you step out, they won't, they only take that many to the finals. They don't take that guy, which would have been me. Really? So again, like I should have got my job done. Like this, nothing on Judd or anyone else. Like I didn't, I had to pick a bad day to have a bad day, but I still always think it's so cool that a guy that, you know, had was an American record holder of just a, like absolute badass of the sport, you know, he, he saw something in me and was willing to give his spot in the finals up because he knew I was prepared and he, he didn't have any more in the tank. Right. No, that's so, really and he and I, he and I have remained friends for years and years. Um, but yeah, so I just, it was kind of demoralizing, you know, I, those last, those two Olympic trials, I, 
my coach from high school or my coach from college was helping me out a little bit, but he had his own athletes and I was working 50 hours a week doing Sorenexy stuff. And, you know, I'd travel on the weekends doing installs. And I was just, I was as much of a professional athlete as you could be while being under stress of being a business owner. Right. Well, and to make it, unless you're really a total freak of nature, I mean, to make it to the Olympics, that's got to be a hundred percent focus, live and breathe it. I mean, seven days a week. You you can't be exactly. Yeah, you can't be scattered kind of a bit like you like. It yeah, like, yeah. It, it wouldn't be like yeah, and that's what I realized on my second one. It was like I, I walked away from. It, I said, okay, I've put the last five years of my life into this. You know, reality wise, I had a shot at it, an outside shot, but you could, you only have so much of a shot, like you said, if you're not 100 percent focused. And I said, okay, so my options are this: I could either quit Sornex, which you know, I'm an owner and vice right. president. I could quit Sornex and go move to one of three locations of the world and train under some of the best coaches in the world mm-hmm. and literally just knock myself down to be in a nobody, live on nothing, and and do that for the next four years right. with a maybe a shot. I said, I'll either have to do that, leave Sornex, go do that, um, or take drugs. Yeah. Yeah, and I said, I said those are really kind, and maybe a combination of all. Like maybe right. I just didn't have the talent level, and I, I go, okay, staring down the barrel of that, I go, I'm unwilling to pay the price that it's going to take to get to that level right. because I can't gamble the next four years of my life on something that, you know, what if I did it the '08? I come out of that, maybe I pick a bad day to have a bad day, and I go, okay, I just gave up everything in my bit, my family business, everything like that. And now I came up, I, I lived in squalor for four years and right. tried my ass off for nothing. And so I kind of said, well, I've had, I've had my fun. I've been selfish. I right. got to do my thing. And now it's time to, uh, to build something that's, that's greater than me. So that's yeah. hung the hammer shoes up and hung the hammer up and, uh, well, and you see went on like it. this year being an Olympic year, it always blows my mind. Um, you see the dedication and let's face it. Most of these athletes aren't really making, I mean, they're not NFL players. They're not major league players. I mean, they're not, there's not the money. I think that sometimes people think there is in the Olympics. I mean, um, I just listened to the black rifle guys, uh, on the free range American podcast and here, not, I don't know, in the last month or two, they had the, um, bobsled team on, I think it was a bobsled. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, those guys, you know, they're buying their own sled, which they're buying like kind of an older, like shittier one because they can't afford the the one that like the number one team gets given, you know? So if you're not the number right. one team, the Olympic committee isn't going to give you, you know, or the team they can't afford to buy everybody a sled. And then the training and where they're living and, and what they're doing and all these athletes that are for four years and all you'd have to, you could be ranked number one in the world. And all you have to do is, is, pull a muscle in your rib cage or something, you know, the week of it. Yep. And you're, that's it. Your four years is over. Pull it, pull a quad or a hammy. And I don't know. It's anything, just incredible. Anything. Yeah. That was catch a cold. It, you know, <laughs> it really is like, yeah, exactly. Like my first year out of college was like, Hey, you're already pretty good. You made the you, you thrown far enough, go do it for an, for an experience. Mm-hmm. And then you throw a little further the next year, and you're like, "I'm going to make a real run at the team." And then so you kind of do that, and then you go, because you're exactly right. A friend of mine, Adam Nelson, won the 2004 Olympics in the shot put, and he jokingly said, "He goes, it's cool." He goes, "But people only care about my sport every four years." 
He goes, right. what, what do you do? The, he goes, the other three years you're asking your mom for money. You know, you're having a, you're, cause you have to train constantly or you get a, an right. old job at the, uh, at the, at the home Depot and right. you know, you're stocking shelves and you're living on nothing. And you're sleeping under the stairs at your buddy's house and all this other stuff. And unless you're, like you said, the, the top, top people that are, have the stipend from the, from the nation, which is still pretty crappy yeah. and you're basically living in a dorm room. Yeah. Or you're let's uh, okay. Or you're like, you know, the hundred meter champion, and you made some money in Europe. You go to Europe every year, and you make a couple hundred thousand dollars. Okay, well, those eight guys are right. doing well in track and field. Everyone else is making like the equivalent of about twenty thousand dollars a year, and hoping like crap to make the Olympic team. So they might get a stipend to be able to go over to Europe in the summertime and make you know. 50 grand. Yeah. And my, I mean, my kids, boils down to it. my daughter and my boy are both pretty good shot putters and, and Sadie's a freshman and she's got like the fifth longest throw in the state right now. And she, she's, she's oh, prequaled, she prequaled for state and she'll be there. And we were actually discussing this, you know, the Olympics coming up and this stuff. And I, we were talking about that and Hank was actually asking me if like, you know, do they, do they get rich dad? And I was like, well, Usain Bolt. Yeah. He gets rich. I said, that, you know, if you're the yeah. fastest man in the world, you, there's a lot of contracts and there's a lot of endorsements and sure. stuff that come with that. If you're the best shot putter in the world, yeah, you're going to have, uh, you know, the people in the know and the people in that world, there's going to be a little bit there. But mm-hmm. pretty much after that, <laughs> you know, like mo- most of those other sports, um, you know, you, you they, we celebrate those gold medal winners for a week. And then for the next four years, they train in silence and it's, I, I have do. huge respect. And then guys like you, there's a thousand more guys, men and women behind yep. the scenes that, that missed it by a centimeter <laughs> or yep. a tenth yep. or a hundredth of a second. You know, the, think about the person in the Olympic that comes in fourth. And those sprinters, you know, in, in, in a tenth of a second, there's four more people that cross the line that didn't medal. Oh, easily. It's yeah, and then, and then those dudes, those dudes at 40 years old, you're like, Hey, I bet that guy was pretty, you know, you, you meet him and you're like, Hey, you look pretty fast. And you're like, Oh, you got fifth at the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> but you're just, you're just a guy at that yeah. point. You know, you, the you, dude that's uh, giving you, you're selling you your insurance. Right. Happened to be like the top 20 guy in the world in the hammer throw, but, but he's not that anymore. And that's just how it goes. Exactly. You know? And meanwhile, the backup, yeah. the backup punter in the NFL is making more money and never sees the field, you know? No question. I mean, the best, like, let's say the shot putters, because American other throwers, they're the, arguably the best in shot put. I mean, some of those guys are making, you know, 300 grand some years, but right. they better be wildly dominant, wildly so. Right. And you're going to surge if you've won like your, you know, world championships, the Olympics, and then you go over to Europe and get the your parents' fees, whatever. But again, you could pull your middle finger, and now you can't throw. Right. Or yeah. you know all that stuff. And those guys, those heavy hitters, they're consistent, are making you know a good bit of cash. Right. But the number five guy isn't making crap. No. <laughs> you know, like, no. That dude's making you know a thousand dollars a you know a month. He's like, yeah, oh, great, perfect. Yeah, he has to spend more on his food that he has to maintain his body weight for than he's making. <laughs> but, no question, no yeah. question. It's yeah. a it's a it's a rough deal, and I I laughed. I said, you know, the first day that I threw in the Highland Games as a professional, I made more money than I made in my entire track career. Yeah, there you go. And uh, 
and I literally, I, I, I left the, actually the only money I made in my track career was I, I placed pretty high at nationals and the USATF paid me. And on the way back, I stopped by Bass Pro Shops and bought a trolling motor with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's I was awesome. Like, cool. It's a good trolling motor. <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've thought for a long time, it's, it's too bad. The Americans, you know, that we don't with, with all the money that our government wastes every second that we don't, right. you know, we don't put a little more money into, cause you know, there's the whole world that, that of the, you know, the whole pampered athlete stuff that, you know, sometimes we see with the professional sports and there's a lot of great professional sports athletes as well, but there's a lot of the pampered stuff, but then you see, you know, the, the other end of it, of the, of, of the, the Olympic people. And it's like, man, it'd be nice if we could help support that just a bit more. Cause we all, we all sit down and want them all to do well once every four years, you know, um, we all want to see the gold, yeah. med- the gold medal count and the overall medal count. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of sacrifice there, but well, but the bottom line of it is it, it costs somebody money, right? Like, yeah, yep. it, it, it's just, it's costly to, to make that go. Right. Right. So moving into Sornex, so you, 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 you kind of, once you realize that you kind of your throwing career was passed and you really started moving into more of a role of, of, I mean, really kind of becoming the face of Sornex, um, uh, the bearded face. We got to say, Bert, if you guys get on <laughs> Bert's Instagram, uh, you're going to see he's got a beard that's about 16 inches long. It's, uh, it's pretty, <laughs> <laughs> I, we always, we always laugh and joke about, uh, I just cannot imagine getting that beard caught in your bowstring. It just, it makes me cringe every time I'm seeing you shoot. It's really surprising that it hasn't happened. Um, I'm not afraid of it anymore. I used to be, especially if the wind was blowing. I've, you know, I've had it, you know, like kind of snag on the, on the knock a little bit, you know, yeah, like one or two hairs. And you're yeah. like, eh, I, I kind of felt that one. Right. But um, for the most part, it's, it's strangely safe. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just, you know, a couple, I guess probably seven years ago now, um, I used to have a handlebar mustache and I was uh, one of the, I guess the commentator at the Arnold classic one time for the strong man. And so I, I knew I was going to do that again. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, let me, let me grow my handlebar mustache back for that. Yeah. That was clean shaven. And then my wife got pregnant with my, my daughter. And so I realized I wasn't going to be able to perform those duties. And so as you all know, when you, when you're a parent, like the first, you know, six months or whatever, you're just, you don't know where you are. So yeah. when I looked up, instead of growing a mustache, I had grown a beard. I was like, Oh, look at that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then, and then you, you know, you're again, you're super busy. So then a year later I was like, huh, I still have this stupid beard, don't I? Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, for the first year, my wife kept telling me, when are you going to cut that thing? When are you going to cut it? And so then about a year later, I was like, I think I'm going to cut it. She's like, you kind of can't now. It's like a thing. It's like, really? kind of become a thing. Yeah. Kind of become a thing. So I was like, all right, whatever. And so that was seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and now I'm like, oh my gosh, like there would be so many people um, that would have zero idea who I am if I cut it. And so I've kind of joked with John Dudley that that's my, that's my out plan. There you go. If, uh, if, if I got to go into witness protection or, or relocation or just melt away like Kaiser Soze, you know, yeah, I, uh, I, I shave my beard, I lose 20 pounds and, you know, come, come morning. I'm a, I'm a banker. Yeah. You'd be able like, to walk yeah. around and have no problem. Yeah. You'd be great. Yeah. You know, if I ever become wildly famous, like, you know, I never have to worry about, you know, 
yeah. getting around. It's so funny, Leslie. I don't think that's going to happen. Your wife, Leslie, was saying at Winterstrong that she uh, looks at your guys' wedding pictures, and it's like it's like she was marrying someone else. <laughs> she's like doesn't even it's hardly weird. recognize that guy she's like that's very, not the guy i married yeah <laughs> yeah oh it's, it's pretty funny so yeah it's, I, i've gotten it caught in a ratchet strap which sucks um <laughs> yeah. i get it caught under like it, it pinch it between my arm and my chest if i'm sleeping yeah and so it's, it's not exactly the most functional thing in the world but uh i like it. and it's kind of like just a it's a little bit of screw you to the world you know a yeah. little bit it's just a little bit of like, I'm kind of reminding myself that I don't have to dress up in a suit and I don't have to do what the world like dictates that we all should do. Right. And it's kind of like, Hey, look, I could be successful looking however I want to look. This is cool. Yeah. And it looks pretty Um, badass when you've got a bunch of frost and frozen (laughs) boogers in it when you're hunting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's where the West really comes in that, that cold air. Yeah. (laughs) It does. It does make for cool pictures. Yeah. So, I mean, you became kind of the face of Sornex and you guys really, um, it really seems like, and I, and I, and I didn't know you guys back then, but from what I've seen and whatnot, you, you kind of had an explosion. It seems like as a company and, um, it seems like once you really kind of took over and brought some of the new ideas and innovation, I mean, talk about a little bit of your, your kind of where you went from, um, what you guys were doing to now you're doing huge projects for professional teams and military. It's, it's really cool what you guys are doing now and um, talk about just kind of how that, how that happened. And it seems like even though you've been a Sornex has been around, like you said, what, almost 40 years, um, Uh, 41, but it seems like there's kind of, it's weird how a company can be around a long time, but also feel like it really exploded quickly as well. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, well, Again, it was, I mean, my dad started it as a, as a passion project. He never had a business plan. He never had, like, took out loans. It was always, like, that was his cover charge to be around what he liked to be around, which was strength. Mm-hmm. So he felt, I could make it better than what's currently out there, so I'm going to do it. But there was never really an idea or heavy idea on scaling it or making it huge or taking over the industry or doing any of that. So there was always the innovation. I mean, dad taught me everything I know about the industry or about, you know, strength equipment. Um, and, you know, and I kind of, when I came on in 99, you know, I would say for the first six or seven years, I was just basically his helper in ways. Yeah. And then he got sick uh, with prostate cancer back in 05. And that was kind of like the first transition because when he was out of the game for a minute while he was getting fixed up and everything, I had to take on the, the everything right, <laughs> so I right. immediate, immediately grew up, um, you know, and the stress and everything that goes along with it. So, you know, he almost had to lay down the sword and although maybe I wasn't ready, I had to pick it up and start swinging just because that was what ne- was necessary. Right. And, and so when he came back into the picture, you know, some things had changed some things had moved on, some things had progressed some things, you know, were just a little bit different way the way I did business because, it was what I understood and yeah. maybe I wasn't as strong as him in some ways. And so, you know, then we worked together for years and, and, you know, after that, but it, that kind of was a little bit of the, the, the torch passing and, um, you know, and time went on and, you know, he kind of gave me more and more, you know, latitude. And I'd say probably it was close to maybe nine years ago now. Yeah. Uh, I lose track of the years, but we kind of, we, we, 
we come up with a couple of things that really change the industry. I'm sure everyone's seen like the CrossFit style rigs with holes in all four directions and, you know, the rig, a rig system in general. Uh, I mean, that was something right. I drew up uh, on a napkin in 2007. Before that, there were no rigs. There were no connected racks. There were, there were squat racks and there were pull-up bars and sure. there wasn't anything in between. And so kind of figured out that there was a better way to do it and something that we felt that would change the industry. And so um, when that popped off and started started working and people started kind of getting it, that was when like we, we somewhat surged. And, and you know, I, I certainly don't want to draw any parallels here, but like kind of when Apple like kind of came, Apple was like a computer company, then they came out with the iPhone. It was right. like, oh, that just changed the way communication was done. And in some ways, the rig system with accessories that could then, like a Picatinny rail, yeah. could be put on and off racks and customizable, that was something that we came up with, which you know actually did change the world of strength training. Because prior to that, everything that was custom had to be built custom versus customizable by the customer. That was, that was the key to the whole thing. Sure. And that was done through having holes on all four sides, which prior to 2007, 2008 didn't exist. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> so, it's, uh, it's really cool. And it's really amazing. It gives, whether it's a strength coach or an athlete or just somebody in their home gym, it gives you ability to really focus and train on, you know, the parts of the body you want to, or the particular, the right. particular, um, activity that maybe you're heading into. If it's a if it's a hunter just kind of staying in general shape during the season, then all of a sudden decides he wants to really build up his legs. Like that kind of modular system really, really is incredible. And, and the way that then you really scale that out into the, what you guys are doing for the, for the teams where you have, um, you know, you have linemen and then you have small, you know, the smaller guy, the defensive back and just the way you guys can really change what you guys, uh, you know, what that person needs for, for what they're doing is really incredible. And the fact that it seems like now when you guys come up with new things, it hooks right on to the rack that they've Correct. had for years, which is really cool. Correct. Yeah, you get it. And that was what we were up against always. You know, I was learning new training uh, modalities and Pops was teaching me stuff and I was coming up with things and I, there was never like a, a platform that would work on all of it, mm-hmm. right? So finally, the the base camp and then the base fit, which are the two base fit became the rig. <clears throat> those were just a solution of how can basically I play as much as I possibly want to and come up with crap, and I don't have to figure out a new way to mount something every time. Right. So the idea was put into the sixteen holes, every two inches on all four sides, and if everything works off of that that configuration, then the world is your oyster of what you come up with. But it also would allow the coaches and the athletes to explore around as well. Like prior to that, there was not a very big interface of the coach and the athlete to their equipment. It was like, this is how it came and I'm using it right. much like, like an AR 15, you get a Picatinny rail. Well, guys could put on lights and lasers and they could play, they can Mr. Potato head the thing all over back and forth and just enjoy themselves with it and then come up with new variations sure. and prior to the base fit and the base camp that didn't happen. So, you know, fast forward a couple of years, talk about the explosion. We were, we were doing pretty well with it, but I was still young, 33, 34, something like that. And was a, a small group of us that worked, worked, I, mean, so I think it was like seven of us at the time. <clears throat> and, you know, we were getting frustrated because it just, we weren't getting the traction that we wanted and, but we were playing, playing it safe. 
kind of deal. Mm -hmm. You know, you're always kind of probably like you were with Montana Knife Company before Montana Knife Company was Montana Knife Company. Yeah. And so we were sitting there and I remember talking to the guy. I was like, all right, listen, we're, I mean, I think I was the oldest besides my dad. I was the oldest at like 32, 33. And I was like, Hey, okay. Like if we're going to do this, let's go after this, like damn the torpedoes, go after it full fledged, hit it. And to see if we could turn the industry and what we think it could be. Yeah. And the idea was, if it doesn't work, we're still young enough to go out and do something else. (laughs) (laughs) But if it does work as we think it probably should, then we're going to be where we want to be. And, and the goal was the plan was this, we're going to, for the next three years, we're going to triple down on everything we do. We're going to keep our nose to the grindstone and we're going to be where we're going to be, or we're going to run the son of bitch into the ground in two years. Right. Right. One of the two, but if we do that, whichever one, at least we'll have a, a, an idea of what we could go. Either we're there or we go, ah, crap, I guess we're going to go bag groceries. And right. then at least we would know. Right. And, but the, the gray area of like, well, you know, not, you know, we call it playing the scared money. You're, you're at the table and you're playing with scared money. You're never going to move ahead. So we triple down and bet it on ourselves. And, and, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, necessarily an investment guy i'm not a stock guy whatever generally everything i've ever invested in has either been myself my business or things i understand yeah and um and my my scope of understanding is pretty limited (laughs) so that's those are the things that i I tie into and it it seems to work well so that was when it blew up but that is the kind of the igniter that blew it up over the next decade and and we've just kind of gained ramming speed within that first three or four years and then it's just a snowballed sense i was listening to a podcast the other day on you know growing growing new businesses young businesses and it was interesting it was a ed milet podcast and Mm -hmm. he was talking about how a lot of people say you know um go to college go get a job get some security save some money and then And then, you know, once you're a little bit older, then take your shot. And he was saying actually the exact opposite. He's like, you're young. I mean, and you know, you were a bit older than I think the person he was talking about, but still Mm -hmm. you were, you were still a, you know, pretty young man. And, uh, he was talking about, Hey, when you're, you know, fresh out of high school, you know, in your twenties, take your shots because really in the end, it doesn't matter. Like you're going to be fine. I mean, if if you got to go get a job, you can go get a job. But he was like, if you have an idea, if you have something passionate about, um, cause you can, you can live like a homeless person. Um, you know, I mean like my sister, when she started into the real estate game, I mean, she was living on beans and rice literally. And, and it took her three or four years through the really bad market in 2010, 11, 12, right in there. And then, she learned the market and came out of it and she's now she's crushing it, you know, but that whole taking your shot, you know, and a a lot of people message me like with quitting my job, you know, in January and people are thinking about this and that and every situation's different and you you can't be reckless, but man, Mm -hmm. if you're young and whatever it is you're passionate about and you think you have an idea, like go after it, you know, and in the end, none of this stuff's going to kill you, you know, you, you know, you might lose right. a little bit of money or you might, you might slide backwards for a little bit and have to, sure. you know, kind of start over. But if anything, you're going to learn experience for the next thing that you, that you take off and do, you know? That's absolutely right. Uh, a good, uh, a friend of mine, um, Tom O'Gara told me, he said, your first loss is your cheapest. 
Yeah. He said, whether it's a business deal, whether it's whatever, if you know you're going to lose, lose fast. Yep. And, move, and and then get back to center and start producing again. Or But, you know, you kick it down the road and then not only do you lose the money, you lose the position, you lose the emotional energy that goes along with it, the frictional cost. Right. And so that's what I looked at. That's where I think I, I personally was at the, the zero hour almost of, right. okay, it, you know, we're, if I get another few years older, I'm going to be locked into this to the point where I can't start over as easily. You can always start over, but you know, I need to do this now. If we're going to do it, the iron's hot. We have, we have the right things going on. We just got to triple down on it. Yep. Um, you know, looking back, I wish I would have done it hard and aggressive 10 years prior. Right. But, you know, but then you look in, my dad was in his fifties at that point. He's not in that, he wasn't in that place to, to gamble like that at that age. Right. So yeah, he'd kind of gone through the hard stuff. And so that was where, like, actually part of the, the lag was because I was dealing, we were, when I was young enough to, to be reckless, I was having to protect him as in his older days. And then it was like, until we shifted over, that was where the turbulence was because, you know, a 60-year-old Richard Soren wasn't about to bet everything he had. For sure. You know, and so you, you kind of have to, and then when I got super hungry, it's like, all right, how are we going to make this all work? Right. Not play with scared money, but also have some sort of security. And that's, that was the art of the whole thing. That was the difficult part. Yeah. You know, I look back and, you know, some of the guys that I see doing just crushing their jobs, <clears throat> I almost envy them as being a pure startup because you're like, wow, as a pure startup, you could, you could fire from the hip and do and say anything. But man, you've got a, a 20 year old legacy business. You don't right. really want to tank that one. You kind of yeah. got to take care of it, you know? Well, and when and you have so your dad, you know, it's, it's, when you have your, it's, it'd be similar if I was starting, Mon- like I was starting Montana Knife Company last year, but I had my 60 year old dad in it that was counting on it. Like I, yeah. I, I could take my shot and I didn't have to look at anywhere but in the mirror, you know, and to my wife. Correct. Um, so no, I can see Correct. where that, I can see where that would be where that would be hard, you know, but I, and I also, timing is everything, right? I mean, there's, there's also Mm -hmm. something to be said for waiting when you also know, like the time's not right, you know, and like with MKC, I had the idea for years, but for several different factors and different reasons, um, I also knew I was only going to get one shot. And so I waited on it until I felt like the time like was right, you know, and, um, that's incredible. And so that's where, you know, I tell people like every situation's different. You really have to be honest with yourself and, you know, sometimes quitting that job and taking off and doing what you want to do is also reckless and you need to wait another year and continue to build. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. So, you yeah, know, with, because there, there's always the science of it, the art of it, right? That, yep. That's where people have to understand, like, you know, and different people within the job, in the business have to have those different skill sets. There's the science the scientists that are numbers guys and projections yep. and all that. And there's the art guy that go to walk into a room and feel what the energy is in there and start to predict what the market is doing by just that little spidey sense. Yeah. And generally, generally the uh, one person doesn't have both of those assets. Right. Very right. rarely. It does take a, it does take a team and, and, um, and you know, for example, in my case, being willing to give up part of the company to get a guy yeah. that has those other, you know, assets and, and, and abilities and tools like I did with Brandon. I mean, um, selfishly, it's nice to hang on to a hundred percent of your company, but 
um, mm-hmm. you, you know, sometimes you have to know your limits and know, you, you know when to need help and ask for help, you know, and, um, yeah. and that's that what, probably with your... the, the wisest thing you did. I mean, looking at from the outside, that was probably one of the most surprising things that you, you figured that out so quickly and moved on it so quickly with such an amazing asset. Mm-hmm. Like I have a lot of respect for you for that because I know how difficult that could be with your baby. I mean, it was hard enough for pops and I we're, we're blood, you know? Sure. Um, and, but that you recognize that is, is a sign of maturity and saying, okay, I'll give up X percentage because I want this baby to grow up. And if the village has to raise it, then that's better. Uh, that's better than me having to have my stamp all over it. And that's, that's a sign of a, of a great business person. And, and I think you've been rewarded amazingly by making that decision and having another set of eyes in there and having another view, viewpoint. I mean, it's really cool what you guys have done. No, I appreciate that. And it, and it is good to have someone, I mean, we have our, our, mm-hmm. you know, say disagreements. It's not like they're fights, but definitely you have your like, ah, I don't know, man, we should do this or that. And it's, it's good yep. to have, good to have those uh, kind of that cross reference and checking each other and making sure we're both doing what we need to do. And, and we, we agree. And, and, you know, we agreed in the beginning, if one of us is completely adamantly against the other idea, then we just won't do it, you know, but if it's kind of like, a, ah, cool. I don't really know, but if you think it's right, do it, then, then we do yep. do what we think, you know? So, um, you know, and we're still young with what we're doing. So, you know, time, time will tell, but uh, that, that's, you know, with, with, so kind of spinning forward here a little bit, um, really where MKC was really born was, was at winter strong and people have seen me <laughs> post about winter strong. And, and, uh, I was actually very fortunate to, you know, you and I have kind of a mutual friend here and it's really funny because he, he had texted me like, he's like, and he had told me, he's like, dude, you got to meet this Burt guy. He came hunting with me and whatnot. And, um, and then like a week later, uh, you know, I was talking to Neil Kamamora and, He's like, dude, you should come to this event with me and come hang out and meet these guys and come forge. And he, he was super kind and super gracious. And and uh, and I always try to point that out. Um, I pointed out on another podcast yesterday that that Neil invited me, and th- and that's really how I met all of you guys. And and I've posted about Winter Strong, and I always get people asking what it's about. And you know, in the knife world, I would kind of somewhat compare it to a hammer in. Uh, we have a lot of knife makers that listen to this podcast or collectors. And, you know, mm-hmm. at, at a hammer in, you have a collection of people that get together, uh, share ideas, teach. There's different styles of hammer ins and whatnot. But basically, it's a collection of talented individuals who share ideas. And, and the whole idea mm-hmm. is to, you know, kind of raise the tide with everybody's ideas. And you took a really cool spin on that. Um, and I didn't get to go to the first. Was, was how many winter strongs have you done now? Is this four, three? three? So th- I missed the this first one. Um, I've been to the last mm-hmm. two, but um, what Bert did here was he he invited not only just people from his from the strength world to talk about strength stuff, but he also invited people, or you did from uh, your other passion, which was this outdoor and this hunting world, and and really combined those two into a really cool event. Where you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but really the idea is um, networking and sharing each other's passions to, to expose each other and everyone to maybe things they haven't tried before, new ideas, but also to kind of learn and, and, and bring in ideas from maybe a different world that, that you weren't really thinking about. Um, you nailed it. Yeah, you nailed it. Both, both industries and both groups of people are, are so, 
I use the term valuable, not in the monetary sense, but like they both brought so much to my life. And I try to pour back into those two worlds because I mean, it's what I'm about. Mm-hmm. And so I got looking at it. I go, gosh, these are some amazing people that I've, I've met through the hunting world, the outdoors world. And, you know, I'll, I'll put knife making into that world somewhat. And then there's this whole physical culture world. And I go, gosh, these, these physical culturists, they need to, in my opinion, enjoy the outdoors and understand that more, be more educated in that or have the opportunities or opportunities to talk to people. And the people in the, the outdoor world, you know, they want to go on these hunts and they want to be able to do these things for longer periods of time in their life. Go, wow, they could really benefit from these people that understand the strength and conditioning game and nutrition and sleep and recovery and all this other stuff. For sure. Why not have an event? where you put everyone in the same camp for a two day period of time, everyone camps out. We do multiple activities that play to the strengths of different people there in both groups. And then realize that the hunters could help, help the, that the strength people and the strength people. And everyone has a, everyone's there for a reason and everyone has a strength and everyone has a weakness. And so after sharing camp for a couple of days, hopefully those, those networks are, are made, but then also hopefully, little tribes are built and, and there's mutual value back and forth. You know, I'd love to see, and we're seeing it. That's the cool part. We're seeing it for the strength community, more people to start hunting and fishing and shooting bows and shooting guns and building right. knives and like that. And I'm seeing it happen. So it's like, Whoa, this thing that I wanted so badly to happen, I'm seeing it occur. And I'm also seeing, you know, the outdoors and the hunting world, more guys lifting weights and talking about, you know, recovery and supplementation. And it's like, man, I knew that there was a connectivity there. And I looked around and I go, well, I don't think, I mean, not being egotistical, I, I think I'm the best person for it. I yeah. was like, I happened, I happened to have those two really strong silos of people in my corner that I go, well, if I could just be the operator and plug those two lines into each other and then step away, then, you know, I could, I think my job is, you know, I want to say done, but well, it was it's something that uh, I saw there was a value there for everyone. Yeah. And it was super cool because, you know, don't get me wrong. I know there's a ton of work. Your whole team does a ton of work to make that whole event go off so well. But really, you know, once you get that caliber of, you know, number of people in the same area, you can kind of step back and it just happens. Yeah. Like, yeah, the, the food doesn't just happen. People have to work and people have to, you know, there's, there's a lot of setup and a lot of work that goes on, but it really does from, from your standpoint, I mean, everybody arrives there and, and you could walk away and people would have an amazing time because you have people there that are, um, that are outgoing, uh, they're helpful, they're, they're curious, uh, they want to try things that they are not good at. I mean, that's what's really cool is so many of those people um, that really perform at a very high level in whatever industry they're in um, are also willing to put themselves in a position to kind of suck at something. And, and, and yeah. it's also really cool because you can think you know something. I mean, uh, for example, <laughs> Michael Bacaleri with, with Leopold, you know, he asked at the first Winter Strong, <laughs> you know, who here can shoot? And so pretty much everybody raises their hand. There were a few of the the athlete, maybe coaches that, you know, that didn't raise their hand because they've really maybe never shot. But for the most part, there's a lot of outdoor people there and everybody kind of raises their hand. And then Michael starts talking and I was, you know, me included, I've been shooting since I was a kid, never formal training at all. 
And within like 30 seconds, it's like, God dang, I should not have raised my hand because I don't know shit right. about shooting. <laughs> you know? I mean, oh, yeah. and that's what's cool, uh, whether it's a it's a guy shooting, teaching bows. Uh, some of the cool, re- really cool things that, you know, you hunt your whole life, but you don't, uh, like the rewarming drills. What do you do when you get wet and you fall in a creek or, um, you know, something goes wrong and you, you catch your tent on fire and now all of a sudden you have to survive outside and, um, first, mm-hmm. first aid and stopping bleeding. And, you know, it could be coming up on a car accident and, uh, it could be your own, you know, it really resonated with me this year when they talked about, um, it could be your own child. Uh, you have a car accident and there's a really bad bleed that all you have to do is get a tourniquet on and stop it. And your child would survive. And if you don't have that tourniquet in your car, child passes away and right. living with yourself, like all you had to do was buy a tourniquet and have it in the trunk or in the seat pocket. And right. it could potentially save your life, someone else's life, or, or you know, one of your own family members. I mean, that was like, shit, man, that, this has nothing to do with hunting or performance or... Right. It's just being prepared, right? And uh, that was that was really a, one of the moments, like things that you don't really think of when it's like, oh, we're going to go shoot some bows and some guns and learn how to lift weights, right? Um, or, or, mm-hmm. or train. Um, something like that that really everybody should be thinking about and it, you're not necessarily a prepper, right? You're not a crazy person because you have a tourniquet in your car. You're just pre right. there's a difference between being a prepper, which it could be good and bad and just being prepared, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. That is something that I think people need to understand the difference. You're, you're exactly right. Like, you know, and there was a number of people there at Winterstrom that I know have had times where they've saved lives because uh, because of those skills. They've yeah. been driving down the road. I mean, Robo, who's the one that taught that course, he was on the Autobahn when he was uh, stationed in Germany and he rode up on a motorcycle uh, wreck where someone had like their leg was knocked off and all this other stuff. And he applied a tourniquet, got the bleeding under control, and then he blood trailed this other person that is, he got thrown from the vehicle and they didn't even, no one even knew it was there. He, he rendered aid to that person and saved both of their lives single-handedly wow. and you look and you go, okay, those people 12 seconds before that happened, they'd never heard of him, never knew he existed. And then he just happened to be the right guy behind the wreck. Right. And you look and you're like, man, how awesome was that? That those people's family, the call they get is, you know, he's in bad shape, but he's probably going to make it for, right. I'm sorry, he died today. Right. Because that guy, because he was prepared and not afraid to act. And you're literally changing entire bloodlines of people and stories of their family. Like everything is changing by you, like you said, being prepared, yeah. being prepared as possible. And I'm no medic by any stretch of imagination. I know enough to probably keep someone from dying as fast as they normally would. Right. But with with my vehicle, I have a med kit in there. And if I go on a long trip with my wife, if we drive more than an hour and a half, I take my med kit out of my truck. I put it in hers and we just have it in there because who knows? Like right. it might be us. It might be someone else that, you know, and yeah. I, I think people just need to be a little bit more aware. And maybe in this last year of, you know, don't get me started with the amount of craziness that's occurred. I mean, we're under, I mean, East coast right now, it has this big gas shortage. Yeah. No shit. But, right. But I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong that go wrong fast. Yeah. That are real life things that, you know, you have to be, in my opinion, you're a, 
you're not even paying attention if you're not at least somewhat prepared for things. Yeah. And so it happened that was with part of what we did there. It happened with Hank and I, you know, and with the kids, I had the kids out in Eastern Montana hunting deer this year and we were, mm-hmm. we were out of cell range, um, 60 miles on a dirt road to Jordan, Montana after dark. Uh, we had just gotten the deer, luckily back to the truck. It didn't happen actually where the deer had been shot, but you know, I just one, I needed to make one last little cut. I was cutting off the, um, you know, kind of the bottom of the deer legs. And I was like, oh, I'm going to cut these off real quick. And Hank was holding the leg and, um, trying to get through the joint and it's kind of, kind of yep. dark and man, come, come across out of there and like an idiot cutting right at him, cut right across the top of his hand, laid him open, mm. you know? And it's like, oh man. And immediately I saw it. I'm like, yep. Especially means- if it was with a speed goat, that thing's a laser beam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, it did, it needed stitches and it was like immediately, you know, and it, it, I knew right off the bat, it wasn't life threatening, right? I was actually more worried that I maybe right. got into a tendon that controls a finger and stuff. As it, as it turns out, we just barely missed that. But the point, the point is, is, you know, and I told that we talked about it, the kids and I talked like, okay, where Sadie shot her deer, we were two and a half miles from the truck through some terrain that was not fun. And, uh, right. you know, you, you slip and absent accidentally, you know, get, get the wrong artery in, in yourself or someone you're with, uh, you know, that bleed out situation is, is really scary. And that we have a lot of hunters and a lot of knife makers that obviously are listening. And it's like, man, you really do. I've never had a tourniquet in my hunting pack and, uh, mm-hmm. and I will this year, um, yep. just by listening yep. to a couple of the stories at winter strong and it, it's super light. It's super small. Um, but man, it, it's, uh, like I, I, I kind of felt like, man, I was being a bit irresponsible having four kids. Um, you know, they're carrying, you know, got broadheads and knives and the whole nine yards. And all it takes is one of them getting cut in a bad way. And I literally had no way. Um, it was kind of funny. I actually tried, I, I thought you could call nine one one if you didn't have uh cell coverage and, mm-hmm. I called nine one one just to, I wanted to ask if there was a doctor even in Jordan because it's a small town and it's on the weekend at night. I wasn't sure if mm-hmm. I was going to have to drive to Lewistown, and I kind of had the option right. of like I drive sixty miles mm-hmm. one way or a hundred miles the other way, and uh, I still couldn't get out. So I actually went to a a farmhouse that had their lights on. I pulled in their driveway, knocked on their door, and I was like, "Hey, here's what happened. I just need to know if there's a doctor in Jordan or not." You know. And he wow. was like, and he's like, oh yeah, there's a doc. I'll give him a call and he'll be sitting there waiting for you when you get there. And, uh, oh, man. It, small town stuff. It was super cool. It, it all worked out really well and it was fine. He got a few stitches and we were good to go. But, but that, that preparedness thing is, is, uh, you know, we, I got off on a little bit of a tangent there, but that's what winter strong to me. It's some of the cool stuff that happens there that I don't think was necessarily planned when you thought of the idea of it, you know, but that, Things, right, things come right. from cool people like that and, and people with experience, um, you know, things come from those events that you don't even necessarily know that are going to happen. And that's, that's, what's really neat about that event, you know? Thanks. And that, that's something we've also learned too, is I've kind of learned one of the secret ingredients is you have to transcend out of your normal place that you, <clears throat> that you, that you wallow. Right. I mean, I'm in the strength conditioning world. But until my own personal opinion was until I was successful and my business was successful outside of the normal strength world, mm-hmm. I don't think you could be truly effective or even really consider like successful, successful because it, it's, 
you haven't really proven your worth outside of your pool. Right. And so part of it was get people together. And if people go, wait, you got hunters and lifters together? That doesn't make sense. You go, hold on a second. Both of them have very similar characteristics personally and moral fabric. And every, they both know how to work hard. They learn how to be capable and everything like that. Just because their capability lies in two different um, silos doesn't mean they're not very similar and can learn from one another. And that's what I also found was, like, kind of jokingly, professional athletes are not generally impressed by other professional athletes. Right. Um, right. You know, special operators from the military are not generally impressed by other special operators. Right. So I kind of laugh. I go, you know, SEALs don't give a crap about other SEALs. NFL guys don't give a crap about other NFL guys. But they're interested in each other, sure, because they they both possess something that the other one doesn't. So there's always mutual respect. There's always great conversation. There's candidness. There's no competition because the guy that's playing for the Patriots isn't trying to be in SEAL Team Six. Right. They're not doing that. So they go, "Hey, you have a skill set. I'd right. like to learn from you. What's that about?" And then the last part is always joke. I said, and everyone wants to be a rock star. Like, right. Yeah. The, the military guys want to be athletes. Athletes want to be military guys and everyone wants to be a rock star. Exactly. So, you know, you put, start putting those people together and you end up with a pretty interesting event because everyone's a lot more apt to, to share whether a knife person is talking to a lifter or a military guy or whatever, because everyone has their thing and right. there's the, everyone could feel uh, you know, pride about what they know how to do, but they also realize that, wow, I have a glaring weakness. I don't know how to do this. Please teach me. Yeah. And, and, the, and, and the, um, the community and the networking that comes out of that over the next year. And that's what's, you got to be really proud of just how, you know, connecting those people together and then seeing those people working together and sharing each other's brands and helping each other build and, and encouraging each other. And, and I, I've, I've had people ask about, how do I get to this? How do I whatever? And I always tell people start your own. Um, try try to start right. your own in your own little your own little area of whatever you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And invite invite some people that you know are really good at some different things and and put it together and 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 kind of take this idea, steal it, and and make it happen in your sure. own little community. And uh, you know, I in this day and age, that's a really good. I haven't heard anyone else say that, but that's exactly what it is because. There's going to be other people that are into music and farming. I'm just making up something. Yeah. But, okay, well, why not get a bunch of badass musicians and a bunch of badass, you know, people yeah. that, you know, know backcountry type living. Right. Make an event out of it. Like, yeah. do get get the heavy hitters there. Make sure they enjoy it. And throw your own party. No, a friend, like, a friend cool. of mine, a friend of Maybe mine is <laughs> is really good in the bronze, uh, you know, the bronze artist type world. And, and uh, he he's actually going to kind of put a little uh, bronze deal on at his house and he's going to invite some other bronze makers and some other artists from other, like, yeah. uh, you know, people who paint and do different things. And, that, you know, I was kind of explaining to him how it worked, how the hammer ends work that I've done at my place and, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. that teaching. And also what really makes your deal unique is that not everybody just leaves and goes to a hotel room at night. For the most part, I'd say 90% <laughs> of the people are staying in tents and, Let's face it, the weather hasn't been good for either of the two I've been to. It hasn't been terrible, but it also hasn't right. been sunny in 70. Um, but that's made it right. actually more, <laughs> Yeah, it makes people all kind of huddle in the big tent at night, and then everybody's uh-huh. heading back to their tent, and they're, you know, cold and doing whatever they're doing. But it makes it makes people kind of 
work together, help each other set up tents, um, share gear if they're cold, you know, it's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. share ideas. Also realize that, man, that tent I bought actually really sucks. I better buy a new one after this trip, <laughs> you know, right. but it makes everybody kind of bond through something. And I, I think that's what a hunting camp does. Obviously the guys in the mm-hmm. military experience that when they kind of, you know, not that we're comparing any of what we're doing to what they're doing, but it does that, you know, when you go through hard stuff, it, it brings people together. And, um, yes, that is, that is it. And that's, you know, I think I've talked about it before as I learned a while back that it's S E T struggle, eat, uh, struggle, eat and talk. And mm-hmm. if you could do those three things kind of in that sequence, um, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, the primeval recipe to building a tribe or building a group, you know, whether it's a struggle might be a workout. It might be a hard hunting trip. It right. might be terrible weather. I mean, back in the day, I mean, in the military, that was the fight, right? That was the actual battle. Right. Um, it could be, you know, back in the caveman days where dudes were chasing woolly mammoths around with spears. Like, that's right. pretty struggling, yeah. you know? And then, the, but they do it as a group, and then they, they sit around the fire, and they eat. So they're, they're getting to relax. They're getting to have their bounty. And then they get to relive the fight. They get to relive the battle, relive the hunt, talk about how each other felt, how their experience was. And, and I found that if you kind of follow that recipe of struggle, eat, talk, mm-hmm. you could bring people together and create amazing experiences because, you know, everything at Winter Strong, everyone has a good time, whatever. But you notice the galvanization that happens after the competition on the last day. Yeah. yeah. Like that, that's the thing we all, that we, everything else builds up to build capability and build confidence. And so when the last day, when we do the comp and you're, you're picked, with people maybe you've said five words to that weekend or maybe you'd met not met at all or maybe that's your best buddy but guess what six of you are about to go do some really hard crap for about an hour right um and then you know you what i love seeing is when they all come back and you see months later on social media the group of people that an hour before didn't know each other they're all you know team number five for life, you know, hashtag and this. And you're just like, that is the coolest. Cause you know, they did awesome. They're all having drinks together later that right. night. They're sitting around the fire talking shit. Like, yeah, that's the cool stuff, man. No, and that, and, that, uh, that competition yeah. at the end of it where, um, you know, you guys, basically it's schoolyard playground stuff and you have team captains and you pick <laughs> your team. And, and for the most part, you don't, you know, a lot of us don't really know each other necessarily. And you kind of have met throughout the weekend and then you compete together. And, um, it was just really incredible. And it's a combination of all the skills that you learned from the weekend and you got to make fire. You got to, you know, obviously in that one, you didn't have to make fire, but you had to answer some questions on a test at the end about how to make fire. Um, but you do have to shoot, (laughs) shoot bows and every, everyone has to shoot pistol. Everyone has to shoot rifle. Everybody has to lift some weight and do some running and, um, you know, and, and you, you, you find where your weaknesses are. And then from there, hopefully you go home and, and work on those weaknesses over the next year. And it's, it's a really cool, just a really cool time. And, uh, I congratulate you. And it's, it's a fantastic idea of what you came up with there. And you, you've really built something, something cool there. So, well, um, thank you. Well, you've been a huge part, you know, having Neil bringing you out there was awesome. He called me he was like, Hey, I got this guy, Josh Smith. This thing. Of course he talks you up. I'm like, but that's what you do when a guy's in your tribe. Like Neil's a great friend. And I was like, Hey, if he's your guy, he's my guy. Bring right. Him, you know? Right. Yeah. And you know, we, you and I hit it off very quickly. You're extremely generous with your time. And, 
and you know you gave me an awesome night and and uh, we talked about MKC potentially yeah um you know you brought your wife and then, and then everything kind of starts gelling and and um it's just it's just a great it's just a great fun thing you know and and but then this year you're much more active with a lot of the forging and kind of driving that and right and that's the thing and then you you lean on your people in your tribe say okay well you know i want josh and lucas and right you know, we're and jason jumped in there and i don't know yep. I, I assume you guys all knew each other oh yeah I knew you knew each other from the industry but i don't know how much time y'all spent together so you know i kind of thought it was cool you're like wow three you know yeah two legend knife makers and up and comer Right. They're all sharing the stage and just getting after it. And, 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 and you weren't necessarily competing. You were helping all these newbies come in. And that was super, super cool. Um, you know, when you're seeing people from the, you know, the Green Bay Packers are learning how to make a knife. Right. And you, and you, I'm thinking, well, there's three super stud hammers in this knife world that are helping them out. And they don't, some of these guys don't even know what level of, of, uh, you know, instruction they're getting right, right. now. Yeah. Like, no, it's super cool. And like Jason and I've known each other for 25 years and, and, and sure. have been pretty close, but I, I had never, I had only messaged with Lucas, Lucas O'Hare with Grizzly Forge. I'd only messaged with him, um, you know, just over Instagram, but it was actually really cool to spend time with him. He's just a gem of a person. And, um, yep. you know, we're going to be doing some more stuff together now that he's out at, at Black Rifle. He's only, you know, a pretty easy day's drive from me. So, um, that's, what's cool about the knife making community. Um, and that's why, like with what you're doing at Winterstrong, I was kind of used to that feel a little bit because that's how the knife making community was when I grew up in it. I mean, mm. hammer-ins helping each other. Yes. We're quote unquote competitors. Um, but it, at the end of the day, we're friends and we're, and you know, we're in this thing together and, and, we would always share with ideas with each other, help each other, show each other stuff. And as long as you're giving the other guy credit and it's like, Oh yeah, Hey, Jason mm-hmm. showed me this or Lucas showed me that or whatever. And, and, um, you just kind of give credit where credit's due. You drive each other, you push each other and it's a healthy competition friendship. And, right. um, no, it's super cool. It's different than a lot of, a lot of different areas that, um, you know, real closed down and, and secretive. Uh, so, right. It was, it's super fun to see. And, and I kind of laugh too, you know, I mean, I support all you guys and I have some of each of your, some of your knives and I'll continue to get more of your, each of your knives. So I kind of laugh. I go, Hey, I don't, you know, I, I love awesome knives. I love knives that MKC makes. I love Josh Smith's knives. I love near Murray knives. I yeah. love Zach Brown knives. I love, I love Lucas's knives and J- Jason Knight's knives. I love old Randall's and like, right. Cause they're all awesome and different and great. And they're in, you know, kind of, I think I made a post back in the hunting season, you know, carrying a knife or a piece of gear, you know, people are like, Oh, you're so like, you know, gear or brand related. And it's like, well, not necessarily that. I'm not flexing on the gear, right? but if my friends gave me a knife or I'm, or I bought it from them and I'm supporting them or a pair of pants or whatever, that little bit of my buddies with me on those adventures. Yeah, for sure. You know, I made a, I made a point when I cut up all those deer in Missouri last year, I made a point to use each one of your knives for a different phase of it. Because in my mind, I'm sitting out on the tailgate of a truck for hours by myself, listening to some Bob Seeger, but my buddies were with me. And, it, and dude, I it's, got to use this knife. It's so cool because, like, it, and it always blows me away. Um, Cole Kramer, for example, he 
I get an I get an email with some pictures. Have they one made day. a better person than that guy? No, I love that. Yeah, dude. he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, we got to go hunt with him someday, man. That would be amazing. That is accurate. Yeah, but he we get an email one day, and here he had sent uh, a picture with his Cape Buffalo with our knife on the horns, and and yeah. with se- several pictures of our knife that he just took of our knife on his Cape Buffalo, and he talked you know, send an email and said, Oh, it worked great and all this stuff. And I told Brandon, I'm like, you know, the pictures are, the pictures are cool. The fact that he actually took time one to take our knife at all, put it in his pack and Mm -hmm. and fly with it to Africa. And second of all, that he took time in that moment. I mean, he just shot a Cape Buffalo. Like it's a, that's a huge experience. And, and the fact that he took time to think about us and be like, Hey, I got to get some pictures for those guys in Montana. Like, yeah, it, it was unbelievable, and and we get that all the time. Um, oh, uh, Robbie with Blood Origins, same thing. We just got oh, some man. really cool pictures from him, and and these people are actually like taking time out of their experience and their and what mm-hmm. they have going to think about somebody else and and send us pictures, and and it does it makes us feel like we were kind of there in in a way, and it's sure it's really cool. Um, yeah, really cool. and it's certainly the other way. It makes you feel like your buddies are there. You know, you want to share it with your friends. Yeah. You, want to, you know, I remember, I remember walking. You know, uh, taking breaking down that buck in Missouri this year and sending you a picture. I'm standing in the rain. Yeah. You know, and, and taking a picture of my bloody hand, yep. but enjoying the heck out of the of the Blackfoot. You know, nice. I'd cut up a lot of stuff with last year, and and it was just like, man, not only. Do I, do I love Josh. I love his company. I love the knife, but I want to make sure he gets to know, like, I have, I have hundreds of knives. Right. But, like, that I chose your stuff because it's that good. And my buddy's on my hunt with me, man. Like, that's the, yeah. that's the whole thing. Like, I look now and I go, I don't even know if I'll, I'll buy a knife at a regular store again. Right. Like, I'll just run the stuff that my buddies make because then they get to be in the whole thing with me. And, you know, life's too short to not have your tribe and and not have your tribe taken care of. And, you know, and, you know, when running a business, you're doing that stuff, but, you know, there's certainly a percentage of my day that, that is interfacing with, with my tribe and, you know, all just making sure each other are okay. Like checking on each other and and how you doing? Hey, can I do something for you? This and that, because, you know, there's not enough money in the world or not enough, stuff or houses or all the other BS that everyone chases to make it right. Not worth doing that stuff. I mean, the, the, the people is what makes the whole thing. hundred percent. No. And it's, it, it means the absolute world world to me and to us. And, and, um, it, it really is. It's just, uh, it's absolutely incredible. And it's the same way when I'm in the basement working out and it, you, you know, you're seeing this Sornex, you know, I, I, I'm just proud to take pictures of my little setup, and it's it's really cool because and people that are listening to this, you know, the average person isn't going to probably buy, um, you know, the 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 big time rack that you guys build for for a lot of people and their works of art, and that's what's really cool about the works the the, the racks that you guys build. I mean, I got to tour Bert's facility and Sornex um, this year, and it blew me away because I knew you guys did big stuff, but I mean, we're out there at 10 o'clock at night and night shift is a bunch of guys, bunch of blue collar guys out there <laughs> welding, welding every single piece together. It wasn't laser robots and a bunch of stuff. I mean, yeah, you have some pretty technical, you have a laser cutter and some pretty technical equipment, but in the end, it's a bunch of guys carrying steel around 
and and welding yeah. that shit together and and checking things and measuring things and and it makes you realize like when you're using that equipment like a real person a real welder an american welder put that stuff together and hauled that thing to the powder coat rack and yeah um and and because you bought that that guy's not only putting food on this table like that guy's buying his wife flowers for mother's day yeah with like like that little stuff like i look at and go wow those cats were good at that thus they're able to take their kids on a vacation and and like that i try to look at it deeper like that because then you know there's always like oh we got to take care of customer services or like whatever it may be but like right what does that really mean in the real scope of things yeah um, and, and so that's where i appreciate our customers like hey man you're making sure that american workers are getting to enjoy the American dream. They're, yeah. getting, to, they're getting to live a, a free life. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and you know, the fact that you guys came up with the off grid rack and, and that's what I've, we've got a couple of those in the basement and mm-hmm. the average guy that, um, you know, is making 15, 20 bucks an hour and working hard and wants to come home and, or start his day off in his, in his, you know, literally in his garage. I, I've seen some of the guys have them hooked between trees outside like that, that <laughs> yeah. stuff's built to be even outside if people want it to be, but for less than a thousand bucks, they've got a, a rack that you can sit up and do everything on, um, you know, or, or anything that you really need to do. Um, especially for the average person, it's a really cool idea how you guys came up with that and it can be mounted in the garage and your car still fits in the garage. You don't have to give up the whole entire garage <laughs> for the rack, but, um, just innovative well, thanks, stuff, man. really cool things that you guys have come up with. And, um, so no, it's, and I, I guess lastly, uh, there's so much more, God dang, we could cover, but we'll have to do another one. But, uh, I love it. You got summer strong coming up. Um, yeah, that's a little different than winter strong. Uh, I, I know Brandon's going to be there. I won't be able to be there this year. My girls are going to be, uh, throwing at divisionals and I'm going to be there, but, uh, good. Heck I know yeah. summer strong is a little more open to the public, correct? Yeah, so so Winter Strong's always been an invite only deal. Um, Summer Strong is really the the first one, and that's you know um, that's open to the public. People can buy tickets and come in, and we still have to cap it with a number of people. But mm-hmm. it's um, I would say it's kind of it is hands on in a, in a respect, but it's the cross between a seminar, a convention, a TED talk, right. group therapy. Motivational, reunion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a competition. It's like all that kind of rolled into one weekend. It's an experience. I mean, that's where we really kind of honed our craft of knowing how to do an event. Mm-hmm. And Winter Strong was a. I mean, we're on our 14th year of Summer Strong, but a Winter Strong was kind of the a core group of the people that were coming to Summer Strong. Said, "Man, we got to do this more than once a year." let's get together and do it in the winter. Let's call it winter strong. And I got thinking about it. I said, well, I don't want it to be just like summer strong. So then I kind of threw a hard ride on everyone and said, we're doing it at the farm. We're camping out. We're going to do cool right. outdoor stuff. And they're like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, so it's kind of funny. I think, you know, the strength world still knows summer strong. The outdoors world knows winter strong, which is kind of cool in a way. But, you know, my goal is to have kind of that cross nation where there will be people from the outdoors world that wants to come experience winter or summer strong. And then people from the strength world that, you know, keep getting pulled into the winter strong side yeah. of it. Well, and you have, I've seen a couple of the speeches online that you've had in years past with like, like Neil Kamamora. I know Derek Woodsky's oh, talked there and, and a number of other people this year, you're going to have Kyle Carpenter, Medal of Honor, Honor yeah. recipient. I mean, 
it's not just um, athletes talking athlete stuff. I mean, there's 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 no. there's the the fitness side. There's there's the motivation side. The the kind of beating the odds side. Like, um, you know, I, I I really do want to come to one of those summer strongs. I've I've obviously seen and heard enough about it, but um, def- oh, you would enjoy it. Yeah, definitely incredible what you have going there, and um, people can kind of see the facility there at Sornex and what you guys have going and um no it's really cool so uh I encourage people Thank to at you. least get online and and google that check that out and maybe in the next couple of years people can um you know that are interested in that especially with you being in South Carolina there's I know there's a lot of people on that east coast that are maybe a relatively easy day's drive to get there if they wanted to go watch that and you know, I, I think yeah, it all that. boils it all boils down to someone might ask like, ah, "I'm a knife maker. Why would I want to go to an event like that?" And I, you, you always, I don't know if you coined the term or not, but that thin air and deep water, and yeah, and that's really, if I could attribute any level of success I've had in the knife making community, it's really been a hell of a lot of luck. Yeah, I put in some work, and there's some skill there, and you know, I, I, I don't think I'm really like born to do any of this stuff I did work hard at it however when I was a young kid little did I know at the time I happened to be learning from what was going to be a group of knife makers that would be some of the best in the world and so I was I was I was I was in I was in thin air and didn't even know or we were heading to thin air you know we were on the launch pad and little did I know I was in the back of the space shuttle you know um and and, uh you were with deep water individuals that we're heading to that thin air and you're like, I guess we're going there, wherever that is. Exactly. And, and, and then I was able to kind of capitalize on that and, and, and turn it into something and, and, and kind of create my own, you know, my own space. But I guess I would definitely encourage people in listening to this podcast. Maybe it's like, I don't, I don't really hunt and I don't, I don't understand where a lot of this has to do with me. Um, Surround yourself with people who have achieved success in whatever industry it is, and then try to figure out how you can correlate that to your own life. You know, um, you nailed it, man. You nailed it. And it was so funny that three, two, three years ago when Neil Kamimura first came here, a lot of people were going, wait a minute, you're bringing a knife maker in is what, because like summer strong now is like out of the strength world. It's the event to get to be asked to speak. Sure. And, and people go, wait, you're bringing a knife maker in? And I was like, well, you might. They're like, oh, that's the guy from Forge and Fire. So they were thinking this weird, like, I was bringing a celebrity in from Forge and Fire right. to like build a build. You know, they, no one really kind of got it. They were like, well, it's going to be entertaining at best. It's kind of like a lunchtime thing, right? But Neil has a story, a ridiculously powerful story. Yeah, and he and I have talked a little bit prior to. He was telling me the story. Actually, we were at Shot Show the year before. And he started telling me the story and I'm tearing up. I'm like, dude, right. you know, I, I'd love for you to speak at SummerStrong. He's like, what's that? And I told him, he's like, okay. He's like, I never told anyone like this stuff openly. And so let me think about it. And so he came back. He was like, all right, I'll do it, but I'm going to go there. And I was like, you going to go there, go there. He's like, I'm going there. And so I thought he was going to come in at like a, you know, I think most people thought it was like going to be a five. I figured it's like a seven or an eight. Yeah, and he, he went, went like a 12. 19. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. He blew. I mean, it was kind of my joke to the end, to the to everyone there because I, I call him like every year. I kind of what I have a I call him a, um, a knockout punch person. 
So you don't know who they are, what they're going to do, and they show up and they blow everyone's faces off because they're like, whoa, what was that? What just happened, you know? Right. And so he was certainly my knockout punch, but he knocked me out because he went there so much further than I could ever understand. And everyone later just walks up that, that could hold their composure and they're like, knife maker guy got it right <laughs> you know, yeah. It was yeah. just like I, I i understand the pick on this fella now and so and that's really one of when our really our relationship solidified and then you know the next year we, we were doing winter strong and then you know he invited you to come out yeah um but that's the key you can learn something from everybody that's what what part of the lesson was is okay great you're an nfl strength coach you just watched one of the most powerful presentations that you've ever seen in your entire life. And it came from a, a, a little Japanese Hawaiian knife guy. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's the key to it all. Like that thin air and deep water. Um, that's what life's about. And it doesn't matter in what venue that you call home, whether it's hunting, fishing, knife making, whatever, right. Whatever. Every, yeah. Everyone has that ability. For sure. No, super cool, Bird. I really do appreciate it. And uh, it does sound like we're going to be sharing a hunting camp later this year together. That'll be cool. Mm-hmm. I'm literally looking forward to Dude, that. Dude, I'm so pumped about that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I I, uh, I hate to say I have somewhat of a vendetta with uh, those those stinking northern Arizona mule deer. Yeah, you you uh, so. we're, we're going down Big Chino Outfitters, uh, JP mm-hmm. and, the, and his boys. And uh, yeah, Bert, Bert, last year you were what, four, full draw at? what were you 40 30 40 yards 40 right at 40 maybe 41 oh on man a, on, on video monster. yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he had, i had a little bush at about 22 between us i couldn't make a clear shot and then he exited the, the scene and they ended up killing him this past year and he was you know public land buck about 190 inches and yeah and, and he, uh, uh, he gave Bird a look and said, I don't think so. And he was out of there. Oh, my gosh. Man. Yeah. And that still just haunts me. Just you just haunts think me they're going to stand up. Like, you just kind of think, like, even if they hear you, <clears throat> see you, whatever, it's like, I'm at full draw. Like, even if he sees me, he's going to stand up and just look at me for a second. And, a split second. And then he just turned into a rocket ship. And yeah. when he jumped up, he was the body was so big. It kind of freaked me out. Like, it. It almost like an elk getting up. It was like, whoa, that, that can't be what I'm looking for. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's, that's him. Yeah, and, and there he goes. Yeah, and there, and there he went. <laughs> I remember the video you, uh, you, you, you took, and it's like, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know that I, I, I would equate it probably to how you felt when you missed the trials by a millimeter. Yeah. Like, you were just, you could tell, like, you'd given everything you had. You were depleted. Um, uh, frustrated, pissed, in awe, like all yeah. of the emotions, all just all of it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, that was that was. Uh, but on my walk back, you know, that's when I, I really, you know, I was super frustrated. All the stuff, like you said, but then you, you know, I almost spiked my bow into the ground, which I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. But um, but on the walk back, you know, it was man, I got to enjoy something that was that encompassing and that I had to be so present. I had to, I was so sucked into it and all of those things. I have to be, I have to feel blessed of that. I got to go on that ride. Right. You know, like, like that I got to feel something I got, because I probably haven't felt that same feeling since 2000, 2000 of the trials. Like, yeah. And to go, I got to feel something to that depth of that type of thing that 
you hate to say it doesn't really matter because it doesn't really like my, my family's life wasn't on the line, whatever. So I got to play this fun game with this animal right. that, that had me so emotionally charged and so emotionally just, just clasped into it. Yeah, man, that's why you do it. And, yeah. and I fell in love even more with that style of hunting on that trip. And then since then it's like, uh, we're going back and we're going to make this work because I, I, that can't end. And you know what, if it happens again this year like that, I'll be frustrated, but man, what a ride. Yeah, no, it's, like, it's definitely a, a, it's definitely a privilege. And, and, um, you know, you think about, I, I tell my kids this all the time about just living in Montana and where we live. And, and you could say just, I don't care where you're yeah. at, just living in the United States of America alone, like Agreed. it, it's a privilege, you know, and a lot of what we get to do, we take for granted and, no matter where we live in this country, um, you know, and, and some of us are very fortunate to live in really cool parts of the country and do cool stuff. But, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's easy to kind of have a pity party and, and, and kind of want to throw a fit. And then you kind of have to check yourself and be like, yeah, I just got to do something that, you know, thousands, maybe millions of people around the world just dream they get to try one time, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was doing at 44 years old when I was sitting in math class in 10th grade dreaming of doing. Right. Yeah. It's pretty hard to that, get too that angry That was what about I was that. thinking. Yeah, yeah. I was like, one day I'm going to get to do this. Yeah. Now my, my story played out differently in my head, yeah. you know, the last little part, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, the adrenaline and the, 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 the suspense and all that and the effort. I mean, that was all there. So yeah. you look at it and you go, it's, it's a good life, man. It's For a sure. good life when you get to, you know, you get to run the experiment. That's yeah. what it's all about. For sure. Well, thanks a lot, Bert. I appreciate it. Tell, tell everybody of kind of where, where they can find you and, and check you out. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So on Instagram, Bert Sorin, B-E-R-T-S-O-R-I-N. Um, I got Sornex on there, Sornex Outdoors on IG. Mm-hmm. Facebook, same thing. Um, I have birdsoaring.com, which is really just set up for like media stuff, but I have it in one place. Sure. Uh, if people want to grab any, any podcast or any rando stuff I've been on. And then of course, like what I actually get paid to do is Sorenex, which is Sorenex.com. That's all the strength equipment. And, um, so it shouldn't be too hard to get a hold of, but yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. It's, it's, uh, to have you guys you guys on the um on the be legendary podcast but nothing else it's awesome to get to talk to you and hang out kind of like we we did in that cabin and uh what was it what is it this year park city was it yeah, on the side of the yeah. highway <laughs> down in park city yeah that was kind of that was a little bit of an adventure there too so um yeah it was awesome yeah no i look forward to seeing you at the tack events this summer i know you guys will have booths uh it sounds like yep. you, you probably will be at what big sky and park city maybe for sure Big, big sky in Park City. Yeah. So we'll be out of the tax. So if someone wants to stop, if you're at one of those, you know, stop by and see us. Well, I'm trying to set up this kind of like the official, unofficial gym of tack. Yeah. So we're going to have gear and everything like that. So when you, it, it may be if you, before you go up and shoot or after you get back to shoot, because a lot of guys I know are up there, the guys and gals like to train. And so um, we'll have some weights there. So if you want to get after it, you know, we'd love to have you come join us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Brandon Lilly, a lot of people kind of saw on my Instagram here this winter, Brandon Lilly came up and forged here and we did a fundraiser knife. And, and I know I've, I've posted, you know, stuff of Brandon's and just to kind of tie it all together, you know, Brandon works for Bert with Sornex. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I know mm-hmm. Brandon's going to maybe be at a couple of those events. He's a super yep. great, He'll be up there. great human. Um, 
Uh, so, Brandon's fantastic. And I mean, you probably, I mean, I, I got to reach out to Laura Zara. She might, I, I could see her being around. She was actually my knockout punch the year before, um, before Neil coming. Oh, really? Yeah. She, she freaked some people out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she's amazing. I always tell people she was on naked and afraid that's, and that's the least interesting thing about her. <laughs> she's that's like, a good way to put it yeah like I, I always feel like you know it's like yeah she's on naked and afraid but she's way yeah, cooler like, than that like there's even there's just way more yeah. there she's really she's a badass for sure so that's accurate yeah so well good to talk with you bud i yeah. appreciate you having me on the show thanks a lot man appreciate it all right brother later Bye-bye.